As I mentioned, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 over the last several weeks. And noticing and studying the way that Paul writes of salvation in a Trinitarian way. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, Paul writes of salvation in a Trinitarian way. In a way that involves each person of the Trinity. Paul begins by talking about the Father's planning of salvation in verses 3 to 6. God's choosing, God's predestining is primarily in view in verses 3 to 6. And then Paul goes on in verses 7 to 10 to particularly focus in on God the Son bleeding, bleeding for the redemption of sinners. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The Son's coming and accomplishing the Father's plan. And now in verses 11 to 14, Paul is coming to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in redemption. And the big idea of today's message is this. The Holy Spirit unfailingly makes God's unfailing salvation purposes a reality in our lives. The Holy Spirit unfailingly makes God's unfailing salvation purposes a reality in our lives. As we unpack this idea, we'll first examine what God's salvation purposes are and why it is that they're unfailing. And then we'll come to see how it is that the Holy Spirit unfailingly makes these purposes a reality in our lives. So that will be the structure of the message this morning. God's unfailing salvation purposes. And then secondly, the Holy Spirit's unfailing application of these purposes. So let's begin by examining God's unfailing salvation purposes. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it is God's purpose, we see explicitly in this text, to justify, sanctify, and adopt sinners. Those are, those are the three things which are most clearly mentioned so far in Ephesians chapter 1. It is God's purpose to justify, sanctify, and adopt sinners. Let's look at each of those terms again by way of review so that they're fresh in our minds as we come to the application of those things to us by the Holy Spirit. What is justification? The Baptist Catechism question 37 answers, justification is an act of God's free grace. Right? So we didn't earn it. It's an act of God's free grace. Wherein He pardons all our sins. God pardons sinners. And accepts us as righteous in His sight. So pardon is the removal of guilt. And He accepts us as righteous of His sight. He views us as being righteous in His sight. Why? Only for the, in, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Imputed to us. So God doesn't look at sinners and be like, well, they're actually not that sinful. And so I'll accept them as righteous and pardon their sins. No, that's not at all what justification is. God looks at people who are not righteous and counts them as righteous if it is that they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God pardons their sins if it is that they are looking to Him to be their substitute, to be their Savior for sins. So God imputes Christ's righteousness to sinners and God counts Jesus' death for sinners as if it was theirs so that the law no longer has a rightful claim upon these people and God pardons them and accepts them as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us 
And the, the catechism goes on to say, received by faith alone. So we don't earn our justification. We just look to Christ. We look to His perfect life for us. We look to His penalty-bearing, wrath-bearing death on the cross for us. We put faith in Him. We trust in Him. And God justifies us for Christ's sake. That's what justification is. And Ephesians 1, 7 uh, gets at that when it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That's where it hits that. Right? It doesn't use the exact same language, but the idea is right there. We need to be redeemed. And Christ redeemed us. We didn't redeem ourselves. The cost of redemption was His blood. We didn't pay the cost of our redemption. It was Christ. And so our trespasses have been forgiven for Christ's sake. Sanctification. In addition to a legal change, God purposes a qualitative change in our lives. Theologians call that sanctification. Justification is a legal change. Justification is the counting of sinners as righteous for Christ's sake. Sanctification is a qualitative change. Sanctification, the Baptist Confession says, is a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So it's not God's plan and purpose simply to justify us, make us legally pardoned, legally uh, forgiven for our sins and in a new legal state, but God actually purposes not just to set us free from the penalty that we deserve for sin, but from the power of sin over us, to actually make us what we are legally. He purposes to make us that qualitatively, to actually change us. That's sanctification. Sinclair Ferguson uh, talks about the old book, Pilgrim's Progress. Whether you've read it or not, uh, his quote is helpful here. He says that the title of that old book accurately describes the nature of progressive sanctification. He says, first of all, it tells us that we are pilgrims. We're going somewhere. We're not there yet. So anyone who looks at you and says that they're without sin, 1 John says is a liar. Right? We're, we're not yet there. We're pilgrims. We're being sanctified. Right? But what he also says uh, is that the other half of the title, the Pilgrim's Progress, tells us that we are making progress. So we are pilgrims who make progress. That is the doctrine of progressive sanctification. And what we see, where we see that in the text is Ephesians 1 verse 4, that we were chosen in order to become holy and blameless in Him. We weren't chosen because we were holy and blameless. We were chosen in order to become holy and blameless. And so God's purpose for us is not only justification, but is also sanctification. And then we see adoption very clearly uh, in the passage in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. And the, the catechism again says that adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And so those are three things that are just crystal clear in this passage. God, God's purposes for the people whom He chose, right? Verse 4, He chose us in Him, why? To justify us, to give us forgiveness of our trespasses, redemption through His blood, to sanctify us in order that we might be holy and blameless before Him, 
and to adopt us as sons in Christ Jesus. Those are things that are very clear, very explicit right here in the text. And the fact that these are God's purposes for us um, are just, is, is just unmistakable. Because the language, the whole language of this passage is language of intentionality. This passage doesn't talk about God offered us justification. God offered us sanctification. God offered us adoption of sons. That's not at all the way that Paul is talking as he comes here to Ephesians chapter 1. Look, look at verse 4, chose. Look at verse 5, predestined. Verse 5, purpose. Verse 5, will. Verse 9, purpose. Verse 10, plan. This is intentional language. God is actually planning and purposing firmly and resolutely to do something. Not merely to make something possible, but to do something. This is the way that Paul has been talking about salvation all the way along. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And God is sovereignly working that plan and that purpose out in a Trinitarian way. And so we saw the Father's role in planning, the Son's role in accomplishing, and um, today we're looking at the Spirit's role in applying. But what I want to do here is just talk for a second, a little bit more, just to drive this point home about the certainty and the surety of God's purposes. Right? So we've seen, we've seen what God's purposes are, but I told you that the Holy Spirit brings God's unfailing purposes unfailingly into reality in our lives. Right? So let's just talk a little bit more about the unfailingness of God's purposes. Right? We've seen just the language of this passage is soaked with intentionality. But let's just consider, as we come to verse 11, what exactly it's saying as it introduces the Holy Spirit's role. Look at, look at verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Ephesians 1.11 may be the strongest and most comprehensive statement about God's absolute sovereignty in the whole of the Bible. Look at it. It says right here, I quote from the Bible, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Well, what about salvation? God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Well, what about this? God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Well, what about that? God works all things according to the counsel of His will. You see what a comprehensive and straightforward statement that is about God's sovereignty. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. So, sovereignty, when we say that God is sovereign, right? God will bring His purposes to pass because He's sovereign. Sovereignty entails omniscience. God could not rule and reign. God could not bring His purposes to pass with certainty and with surety if there were contingencies that He had not yet considered. 
If there were things that God didn't know when he made plans and purposes, and then later he learns these things, then he might be like, okay, I've got to change my plan or my purpose, or I didn't take that one into account, right? So obviously, sovereignty entails omniscience. God has to be omniscient if he's sovereign. Omniscient means all-knowing. God has to know all things if he's going to be sovereign, right? Sovereignty entails omnipotence. God could not rule and reign with certainty and surety, bringing each and every one of his purposes to pass, if it is that there were obstacles to his purposes which God could not remove. So, God might know everything, but if God knows everything but can't actually overcome a particular obstacle, then God also can't sovereignly bring his purposes to pass. Right? So, sovereignty has to entail omniscience, all-knowing, and it has to entail omnipotence, all-powerful, right? because otherwise God couldn't sovereignly bring his purposes to pass. But biblical sovereignty goes further than just mere omniscience and omnipotence. The Bible teaches more than simply the truth that God knows what will happen. And it teaches more than simply the truth that God can overrule anything that His opponents may do. The Bible teaches, as I just read, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God has decreed everything that comes to pass. God has decreed everything that comes to pass. God works all things according to the counsel of His will. This verse does not say that God responds to all things according to the counsel of His will. In other words, as things happen, God responds to them as He sees best, and that's His divine prerogative. This says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God has decreed, as our confession says, whatsoever comes to pass. Or as the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115 and verse 3. So justification, sanctification, and adoption are God's purposes for His chosen people. If God has purposed it, and if God is sovereign, then He shall certainly and surely bring it to pass. Let's consider now the Holy Spirit's role in redemption. Let's consider now the Holy Spirit's unfailing application of God's purposes. Let's think about justification. Right? We've seen in this passage that one of God's purposes for His chosen people is justification in order that they might have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of their trespasses. That is God's purpose. It is God's sovereign purpose. He knows. He has the power to do it and He has decreed that it will be done. All of God's chosen people will be justified. It will happen. Every single one whom God has chosen to justify will be justified. Now justification is by faith. We are pardoned when we place our faith in Jesus, shifting our confidence away from ourselves and towards Him. Justification, again, right, is the pardon. It's God's accepting of us as righteous only for the sake of Christ's imputed righteousness to us. Right? How, here's how it works. If we trust in ourselves and our obedience and we go and stand before God, we stand there and we say, God, accept me on the basis of my own obedience to you. God looks at our obedience and says it's lacking. It's as filthy rags. Right? And so He does not accept us as righteous. And moreover, 
He looks at those who trust in themselves for salvation and says, Moreover, not only are you not righteous, but you are deserving of my wrath. You are deserving of punishment for your sin. And so, when we have faith in ourselves, we do not receive justification. But when we shift our confidence away from ourselves to Christ, which is what faith is, then the conversation would go like this, as it were. God, please accept me for the sake of Christ Jesus. Because I'm trusting in His perfect life lived for me. I didn't live a perfect life, but Jesus did. Count His righteousness as mine. And I know I deserve to go to hell. I know I deserve wrath. I deserve punishment for my sin. But Jesus died on Calvary for the salvation of sinners. Please accept His death as if it was mine. His death in my place. That's shifting our faith. And when we come to God like that, God justifies us. That's what justification by faith means. So here's a little quandary and a little conundrum. If justification is, in a sense, contingent upon human faith, then how can it be a certain and sure and sovereign purpose of God? How can God have an unfailing purpose? An unfailing purpose? sure purpose according to His immutable decree that every single person whom He intends to be justified will be justified if in fact it is in a sense contingent upon our faith. How can that happen? The only way that it can happen is this. If the Holy Spirit comes and brings each and every one whom God has purposed to save to faith in Christ. If it is that the Holy Spirit comes and wins over all of God's elect to faith in Christ Jesus. That is the only way that justification by faith can be said to be certain and sure for all of God's elect people. We see here in the passage that that we who are Christians have been predestined, in verse 11, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will to obtain the inheritance. So if this is God's plan and purpose for us, the Holy Spirit comes and makes it happen. It is because it's God's plan and purpose for us that the Holy Spirit comes and makes it happen. The way that the Bible talks about it is like this. John 6, 44. No one, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But he also says in that same section of Scripture, in fact, right afterward, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So what's standing in the way of people coming is not God saying, no, you can't come. What's standing in the way is an inward defect. God's not saying, no, 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 nobody, you can't come, you can't come, you can't come. That's not how it works. When He says, no one can come to Me, what He's saying is, no one has the ability to come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. He's putting His finger on an inward defect of the people that He's preaching to. Ephesians 2, 1-3 describes this inward defect as following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among all whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is what, a, this, is what this inward defect looks like. We're inclined away from God toward the passions of our flesh, toward other things. This is the inward defect that makes us unable to come to God unless God Himself draws us. 2 Corinthians 4 uh, and verse 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Or the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So there is an inclination away from God. There is a spiritual blindness. Remember the story that Jesus told about the sower going out and scattering seeds? The problem is not in the seed. The problem is in the soil. You see? This is what Jesus is saying when He says, no one can come to Me unless God the Father draws Him. There is a problem with us inwardly as human beings that keeps us from going to Christ. The inward defect must be overcome. But in that section of Scripture, John chapter 6, Jesus says, all that the Father gives Me will come to Me. So we talked about the covenant of redemption a couple of weeks ago. That there are people who are given to the Son in eternity past, chosen before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 4 says. They're, they are the ones who have been given to the Son by the Father. And Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. So, how can Jesus say with such certainty that all that the Father has given to him in eternity past will come to him if it is that all of those people have this inward defect? of being inclined away from God, of having spiritual blindness. Again, because the Holy Spirit will come and overcome that inward defect. John chapter 3 and verse 5, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit gives you the new birth. That's what John chapter 3 and verse 5 says. Which means that the Holy Spirit gives the new birth logically prior to entering the kingdom of God. Now listen to the verse again in case you didn't catch that. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't enter unless you're born again. Which means you need to be born again logically prior to entering. Now that happens in an instant. Right? You, you're born again and you see Christ and you believe and you enter the kingdom. It's not chronologically separate. You don't just walk around regenerate for a month or two. But logically prior, you, you cannot, you will not, because of an inward defect, look to Christ in faith until you have been born of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, this is just after what I just read you about people being blinded by the God of this world. Just after that, it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's spiritual blindness, but God shines in the hearts of those who are spiritually blind, in the context, to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So again, the Holy Spirit gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God logically prior to us seeing it. If we can't see it because we're, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, 
that until God shines His light, we can't see it. Right? So, the Holy Spirit, in other words, shines in our hearts in order that we would see the light of the glory, the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see? So, this is what's going on here. We have, human beings have an inward defect. But God has sovereignly, certainly, surely, infallibly, immutably, unchangeably, unfailingly committed Himself to saving His chosen people. He has chosen to save some sinners. And He will do it. God has chosen. God has planned. God has sent His Son who willingly came. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely. To bleed and to die on the cross for those people whom God had chosen. But a problem remains. All of those people have an inward defect. Which means that they cannot come unless God draws them. They're spiritually blind. They're inclined away from God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They need a new birth, John 3 tells us, before they can enter the kingdom of God. They need God to shine in their hearts before they can even see the glory of God, the gospel of Christ. Right? Before it clicks, before they can enter, God has to do something to them. God has to do something in them. Now, again, we could say that, well, the Holy Spirit comes and renders it possible, maybe, that these people would come. Right? But then Jesus could still not say, all that the Father gives me, has given me, will come to me. He couldn't say that, certainly and infallibly and surely. It couldn't possibly be that it's merely a possibility. Because that would actually make God's unfailing purposes not unfailing. Right? If it is that, that ultimately, at the end of the day, people can merely are enabled by the Holy Spirit, possibly, to choose and come, then... God's unfailing purposes wouldn't be unfailing. And Jesus couldn't say, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So what you see in the Scripture is quite the opposite. Certainty, surety, all the way through. God has chosen a people for His Son. The Son has come and atoned for their sins. The Holy Spirit comes and unfailingly brings each and every one of those people to faith. This is what some theologians have called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And people misunderstand that and they think that it's like, we really don't want to come. We don't want to come, but it's like a tractor beam in a sci-fi movie. And here we are running the other way, but going like this, right? And God is drawing and God is pulling and God is wooing and God is winning and we don't want to go. Right? And people say, no, 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 no. It's obvious that's not how salvation works. People willingly choose God. Yes, people willingly choose God, but they don't willingly choose God when they're dead in their trespasses and sins. And they don't willingly choose God when their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world to keep them from seeing the glory of God and the gospel of Christ. They don't willingly come. And so what the Holy Spirit does is He comes and He infallibly, unfailingly, certainly, surely overcomes the inward defect that keeps people from coming. And He changes their hearts. He actually makes their hearts fundamentally different. The parable of the sower that I mentioned a little while ago, the moral of that story isn't, well, make sure you've got good soil. <laughs> 
That's not the moral of that story. <laughs> the, moral, the moral of that story is something else. We are not the ones who actually prepare the soil of our hearts. It's not like, okay, all right, you better, you better get yourself born again. You better, you, better, you better birth yourself over because you're an unregenerate person. You're dead in your sins. Get born again. That's not at all. What we see in Scripture is that it's the Holy Spirit who turns bad soil into good soil. It's the Holy Spirit who turns bad soil into good soil. He does something fundamentally in our hearts, changes us fundamentally, so it is that we look at Christ and for the first time see that He is a sufficient Savior. That something beautiful and something wonderful happened at the cross. Ah, finally I get it. I deserve to go to hell, but Jesus died in my place. I want to come. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Oh, I never saw before. It's as if I had scales on my eyes. But now the scales have been taken off. They've fallen away. And now I see, wow, this gospel really is good news. You know, I've sat in church and heard this a million times, and it never made sense until now. You know why it never made sense until now? Not because you got smarter. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit gave you the new birth. All of us who are Christians are Christians because when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were bad soil, when we were blind to the glory of God and the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit came and worked out God's unfailing purposes unfailingly in our lives. The Holy Spirit came to make sure that we come to faith in order that God would justify us sanctify us and adopt us into the family. That's why we are Christians. So you must be born again. It is the Holy Spirit, however, who gives the new birth. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit gives the new birth unfailingly. Unfailingly. In a way that is impossible to resist. He comes and He does something unilaterally to us. Changing our nature apart from our effort, apart from our involvement, apart from our consent, the Holy Spirit comes and changes us fundamentally so that once we were not willing, and now we're willing. And we come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and are justified by faith. So the Holy Spirit unfailingly comes to make God's unfailing purposes a reality in our lives. So that's justification by faith, right? Now we have sanctification and adoption were the other two things that I mentioned. But we're not going to actually look at those in great detail because those are sort of not the focus of the passage. The focus of the passage here is basically just that the Holy Spirit comes and unfailingly brings the things that were mentioned in verses 3 to 10 to pass. That's kind of the point of the passage. So I use justification by faith to get us thinking along the right lines. But as we come to sanctification and adoption, we're not going to actually just specifically talk about how it is that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, how it is that we're adopted. What I want to do is just just speak more generally about this. Having been justified by faith through the Holy Spirit's ministry to us in regenerating us and bringing us to faith, the Holy Spirit doesn't just stop being involved in our lives. And it's not as if the Holy Spirit unfailingly brings us to faith, but now it's entirely at us 
to just keep going. Right? Because again, then, God's unfailing purposes wouldn't actually be unfailing purposes. They'd be hypothetical possibilities. Right? And the Holy Spirit wouldn't have unfailingly brought these unfailing purposes to pass in our lives. He would have just given us an opportunity, as it were. The Holy Spirit keeps working in our lives subsequent to our conversion to see to it that we receive all of the blessings and all of the benefits that God the Father planned in eternity past and that Christ Jesus won for us. The Holy Spirit keeps working, keeps unfolding and giving all of these things to us. He doesn't just drop us. We need to distinguish between various benefits of Christ uh, in order to stay clear in our minds um, about what these doctrines are and what they aren't and even to keep us out of heresy. Let me just give you an example. If we don't distinguish justification and sanctification, we're going to have a big problem. Because if, we're gonna, if we start to conflate those two and talk about how God pardons us because He sanctified us, then we get, we get justification by works. Right? You understand what I mean? We can't conflate justification and sanctification. So we need to distinguish and we need to demarcate between various blessings and benefits of Christ. And regeneration is not the same thing as conversion. Conversion is not the same thing as justification and so on and so forth. We need to distinguish. We need to demarcate one doctrine from another, one benefit of Christ, as it were, from another. But we need to understand that there's a fundamental bond and unity between them all. They are, first of all, a package because they are part of God's purposes for us. God who purposes justification for His elect, purposes sanctification for His elect. He purposes everything that is necessary and everything that is essential to the Christian life for all of the people whom He gave to the Son in eternity past. And so we can't receive justification without receiving sanctification. We can't be regenerated without uh, experiencing justification. All of these things come to us together. It's a package. God has blessed us, look at back now a couple weeks at verse 3, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. Right? His purpose is to give us, His elect people, every spiritual blessing. So they're a package. There's a fundamental unity. And the Holy Spirit's not going to unfailingly bring one of those things and not unfailingly bring the rest. There's also a fundamental unity because they are received the same way. And that is by union with Christ. All of these things are experienced as benefits or, and or fruits of union with Christ Jesus. Theologians distinguish between types of union with Christ. There's a type of union with Christ which is eternal. Right? This is how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is when, when Christ says, all that the Father uh, has given me. Right? Where there's a transaction in eternity past where God unites His elect people to His Son in terms of His purpose, in terms of the covenant of uh, redemption, which will be unfolded in history as the covenant of grace. Don't worry if you're not catching all of that right now. I just want to make the point that in eternity past, there is a, a type of union with Christ which is legal, 
It's in God's mind. Right? It's in God's plan. It's in God's purpose. But then what happens is there's an actual, whatever you want to call it, an actual union with Christ, a vital union with Christ, uh, experiential, a tangible, a realized union with Christ, which happens by faith. So when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, we are united to Him. When we place our faith in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ Jesus so that what is His becomes ours. What is ours becomes His. Think of it like a, a wedding ceremony. When two people are joined, all that is His becomes hers and all that is hers becomes His. And that's the way that we receive justification. Our sin becomes Christ's and His righteousness becomes ours. It is in union with Christ that we are sanctified. As John 15 says, apart from me you can do nothing. But abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. It is uh, in union with Christ that we actually grow in holiness. So we don't, get, we don't experience justification in union with Christ, but then severed from Christ, we, we go and pursue sanctification. Right? That's not how it works. Here's the thing. Either we're united to Christ or we're not. And if we are united to Christ, then all of the blessings, all of the benefits of union with Christ are or will be ours in due time through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as He unfolds to us and applies to us all of the things that Christ achieved for us and Christ won for us in His life, death, and resurrection. Everything that God the Father has purposed to give us, He has purposed to give us in union with Christ. And the Holy Spirit unfailingly sees to it that we are united to Christ in the first place, and that we remain united to Christ. And He unfolds all of these blessings and all of these benefits to us in due time. And so there's a fundamental unity here. So He's not gonna, the Holy Spirit's not gonna unfailingly see to it that we come to become Christians in the first place, but He's also gonna see to it that we persevere. The Holy Spirit's also gonna make sure that we fully and finally receive everything that the Father planned for us in eternity past and that the Son accomplished for us in His life, death, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit is going to unfailingly see to it that God's unfailing purposes become a reality in our lives. So He's going to make sure that we persevere. Theologians talk about this doctrine as perseverance of the saints. And the only reason that the saints persevere is because they're preserved. <laughs> if we were not preserved, we would not persevere. Matthew Henry said, if there was but one hour... But one hour that God left us to Himself, all would be lost. Right? That's true. The reason that we persevere is because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us in holding us fast to Christ. Right? If you think, again, just to, just to draw an analogy, a human analogy, which obviously will break down at points, but uh, two people uh, being brought together can happen either by each one's grip on one another or it can happen by one's grip on the other. You see? So I could hang on to someone at the same time as they're hanging on to me. Right? Um, or I could hang on to someone who's not hanging on to me, but nevertheless they're still with me. You see what I mean? And the way that the scripture talks about it is that fundamentally at the bottom at the bottom 
Our relationship with God is Him hanging out to us. Fundamentally. Yes, we need to respond in faith, but at the bottom of it all, God is hanging on to us. He will see to it that we persevere. Look at the language of this passage, right? So in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In other words, it couldn't be otherwise. We had to obtain an inheritance, obviously, because we were predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Um, in him also, when you heard, verse 13, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, depending on what version you have, that word guarantee might say earnest or something like that. Or in the footnote, you might see or down payment. This is the idea here, right? The Holy Spirit has been given to the people whom God has justified as a down payment. Now, you, everyone knows what a down payment is, right? You want to buy something. You're committed to buying something. You're going you're, you're, you're gonna to see it through. And so you give a down payment to confirm that you're going to see it through. Right? Now, down payments are only lost by those who change their minds. Right, so maybe you just you get caught up in the heat of the moment and you put a down payment on a nice new car and then later you go away and say, Oh, I'm never gonna be able to make the monthly payments. Right? Or you say, you know what, actually I or maybe you got money to burn. And it's not an issue of whether you're able, it's just an issue of I actually just decided I don't want that make and model anymore. You relinquish the down payment. You right and you don't follow through on your down payment because you change your mind. Right? Or, like I just alluded to, maybe you're unable. Right? And so you think, I can never do this. And so, right, you don't follow through on your down payment. Or, you lie. Right? I intend to buy this thing. Here's my down payment. When you never intend to buy this thing. Right? I mean, I'd be stupid, but conceivably it could happen. But the only reason that people don't follow through on their down payment is either they change their mind, or they're unable, or they're liars. Right? So if God has given us a down payment, right, that we're going to receive all of the blessings and all of the benefits that the Father has predestined us for and chosen us for. And the Son has come and made all the provision required that we would receive all these blessings. And God has even given us a down payment. Then here's the only options. God is going to change His mind, which cannot happen. Because he's not like us. He's not fickle like us. God doesn't change his mind. His decrees are immutable, which means unchangeable. Certain and sure, God does not change his mind. He is not like a man who's just uh, this way and that way. He doesn't receive new information, which causes him to reconsider something. He's not, uh, he doesn't have passions like us, which means he doesn't, he's not sort of blown back and forth. He doesn't react to things that makes him respond to us differently, right? So he's not going to change his mind. So is he unable? No, he's not unable. Is the Lord's arm too short? No, the Lord's arm is not too short. The Lord works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is utterly, surely sovereign. He is not unable and he is not alive. Hebrews 6.18 explicitly says it is impossible for God to lie. 
And so God will follow through on His down payment. So what you see is that the Holy Spirit certainly and surely, unfailingly brings God's unfailing purposes of salvation to become a reality in the lives of God's chosen people. The Holy Spirit unfailingly brings God's unfailing salvation purposes to reality in our lives. In the beginning of our Christian lives, we need the Holy Spirit. All the way through, we need the Holy Spirit. And we have the commitment of God to help us by the Holy Spirit, to give us the Holy Spirit. We have a promise even of His Word. Look at, He's he's called the promised Holy Spirit. Among other places, Joel 2, Ezekiel 36 and 37. He's promised to all those who are in the New Covenant. Right? We, have, we need the Holy Spirit, but we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We, have, we who have already been brought in have the Holy Spirit. And we have the commitment that He's going to remain with us and help us and sustain us and strengthen us all the way through. So, God the Father has planned. God the Son has accomplished. And God the Spirit comes and applies this great Gospel to us. This has been the theme of Ephesians 1, 3-14 that we've looked at over the last few weeks. What a wonderful Gospel. What wonderful good news that there is a bedrock for our faith in a sovereign God who will stop at nothing, who will spare no expense to see to it that His plan to save sinners comes to full fruition and that Christ has the prize for which He died, as we sing sometimes, the inheritance of nations, that God will certainly and surely, sovereignly, unfailingly bring all of these purposes to pass. And so we see three times in this passage, and we need to draw this out, we need to draw this out before we move on in the book of Ephesians. Three times in this passage, look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. And look at verse 12. To the praise of His glory. And look at the end of verse 14. To the praise of His glory. Why has God done all this? Why has God done all this? We sang a song. Um, I was at a different church in the middle of the week and we sang a song. It's something like, God, God didn't want heaven without you or something like that. <laughs> right? And so He came. So, something like that. Like, there's a sense in which that's kind of true, actually. God actually loves His people. Yeah. He actually did want us. He doesn't need us, but He actually did want us. But when, we, when our songs and our preaching is full of lines like that, we might get the wrong impression that this is a human-centered universe. That God exists for me and my happiness. God exists for me and my comfort. Right? Or maybe we're a little bit less narcissistic and we say God exists for us. Not, not me. Not me, but us. We His church. We His people. God just was He's just so blessed to have us. You know, it just, it just makes God so happy to have us. He's just so blessed to have us. And so He spared no expense to get us. Right? You, you know, Sometimes we run the risk, right? We don't want to diminish the fact that God actually does love us. That God actually does want us. Right? We need to get that. We need to get that in our hearts. That the gospel is not this abstract thing that we just theologize about. But we are actually adopted as sons and daughters. And the Father loves us. Right? He does want us. 
Zephaniah talks about, Pastor Chris reminded me this week about how on that last day, he's going to sing over us with delight. And that's a beautiful thing. He does want us. But listen, at the very bottom of it, why does God do what he does? Why did God save us? Not because he was so desperate to have me. (laughs) Not because he was so desperate to have you. And not because he's so desperate to have us. The reason at the bottom why God does all this is to the praise of his glory. That on the last day, that day when every knee will bow, and that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It just means that everyone will see the King in His glory. Everyone will see that it's been true what Christians have been preaching all along. That it's true what the Bible says. That everyone will see. Wow. Look at what God has done with His people. He has been gracious. That's what it means to the praise of His glory. God does all of this. Elects. Atones applies, sustains, justifies, sanctifies, adopts. God does all this so that on that last day, when everything is laid bare and it's no longer, people can no longer hide behind the pretense of disagreeing with it. It's just going to be so open and so manifest that this is true. That on that day, that everyone will look and see what God has done with His people. And be in awe of His grace. In awe of the glory of His grace. Look at these worms. Look at these wretches. Look at these people who deserve to die and go to hell for their sin. Look at them. He made them in His own image. But they rebelled against Him. And they defaced His image. Look at them. They were nothing. But God chose to save some. And God even gave His own Son to bleed and to die on the cross to get them back. And the Holy Spirit came because even though the Father had chosen and the Son had come and bled and died, can you believe it? These people were unwilling. But the Holy Spirit came and shone in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory. He brought them in and He held them fast. And He saw to it that they received every one of God's gracious purposes. And on that day, no one's going to be talking about free will. Everyone's going to be talking about God and His grace. Everyone's going to be on their knees, on their faces before God and His grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He save me? To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He save you? To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He save us? To the praise of His glorious grace. This is a glorious gospel. We don't need to be ashamed about it. We don't need to be embarrassed about it. We don't need to uh, ultimately feel the responsibility for convincing people about it. Just, we just need to believe it, rest our souls in it, go out there and testify to it, and let the chips fall where they may, and urge other people urge other people that God is a safe refuge for sinners who are in need of a Savior. This glorious plan of redemption cannot fail. It cannot fail because a sovereign God undergirds it all the way through. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can urge unbelievers 
Right? I talked about last week. We don't need to go in evangelism. We don't need to go figure out who's elect in evangelism. Right? We go out and we tell people, listen, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? We go out with these words of God in our hearts and in our mouths, and we proclaim salvation for all and any who will come to Christ in repentance and in faith. And we assure them that a sovereign God has undertaken this gospel. And so if you place your faith in this gospel, it will not and it cannot fail you.